at our scripture that can be found on the inside of the bulletin. It's Luke 14, 7 through 14. Now Jesus told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. The word of the Lord. Well, this is the parable of the table or of the banquet we could just as easily have titled this What Not to Say at a Dinner Party. Because Jesus uh, comes into this dinner party and promptly turns over the proverbial table, seeming to insult just about everybody at the party uh, in some way, shape, or form, uh, ignoring decorum and explaining to the uh, host of the banquet who it is he's supposed to invite explaining and calling out the participants at the dinner banquet how they are to sit. It's a very interesting passage because it's a microcosm, if you will, about society and about life. It challenges our notion, indeed even goes deep into our souls of the question, who is the greatest? interesting that questions being asked it seems all the time in the Bible isn't it even the disciples who are there with Jesus Christ the servant uh, are asking the question who is greatest the truth of the matter is our culture even ourselves are obsessed with greatness how do we ascend the ladder so to speak we call it the rat race certainly a proper name. Even if you get to the uh, winner's circle of the rat race, you're still a rat, says Lily Tomlin. It's not pretty. It's pushing and it's shoving. It's backhandedness and dealings done in secret. But if we're honest and when we look into our hearts, we see that there is a heart of darkness, a desire to be first, a desire to be glorious. I wonder if it's as much our desire to be glorious as also to escape an inner sense of shame that we may have in our hearts. There's a darkness in our hearts. There's an understanding that all is not well. There is not peace. The clock is ticking and there is some sort of race to be run. Because man in his heart of hearts understands that at one day we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 
and our works will be laid out in front of us. And so there is a conscious and unconscious desire to get to the top, whatever that top is. The world says the top, the pinnacle of glory and success is based on our power, on our privilege, our prestige, our money, our looks. But we see quite a different picture here, don't we, in the scriptures. Jesus warns and shows us the truth of the matter that he who exalts himself will be humbled. But whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Within this sentence we see the seed of greatness lies not in ascending to the top, not in having a puffed up version or view of ourselves, but rather in descending to the depths, in recognizing to our shame that we are not all that we think we are. Indeed, we are not perfect, but rather we're sinners in need of a Savior. For he who is least will be the greatest, and he who is slave will be first. And so we have to ask the question, we have to enter into the dinner party ourselves, examine our behavior. Are we like these party crashers seeking to be first in the kingdom of God by illicit means? Or are we taking the path of humility, receiving the mantle of greatness from the only one who can bestow to us authentic greatness, which is God? You see, my friends, God is the only one who has the power to turn your shame into glory. And so when you humble yourself under his hand, it is he who will lift you up in due time. Well, in order to do this, in order to humble ourselves before God, we need to do three things. Number one, we have to have a proper view of ourselves. So my goal for the first hour of this sermon is to put each one of us under the microscope and see us for who we really are. And then hour number two, we have to have a proper view of God. Who is He? How does He evaluate glory? How does He see people? And then finally, number three, we have to have a proper view of others. For it's only when we understand God's grace that we truly can put people in their proper place. Because God is the one, the only one who has the power to turn our shame into glory. Let us humble ourselves under his hand that he may lift us up in due time. Well, let's begin with this passage. And in fact, I made a mistake. I wanted to read the first part, uh, first, uh, 14, 1 through 7. So if you have a Bible, you can look at that. If not, no worries, I'll explain it. Because even before they sit down for the feast, so keep in mind, a, a Pharisee has invited Jesus to this feast. And there are a variety of different social excuse me, customs and as they're mingling, lo and behold, a person appears before Jesus who has dropsy. And uh, did he barge his way into here? We don't know. Was he invited sort of as a test case by these Pharisees? We're not sure. But he has this malady called dropsy. And uh, we would translate it as edema. So he has a, it's a, a swelling of the tissues due to water. And so here is this person, your, your ankles, your arms, sometimes your face who has uh, distortions, if you will, and he's standing before Jesus and no one is saying anything about him. It's like they're waiting for a response. And so Jesus, the traveling rabbi who's been invited, turns to everyone and says, because it's on the Sabbath, 
Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? To heal this man? But nobody says anything. Jesus turns and heals this man of his malady in front of everyone. And lo and behold, he is saved. And the scriptures say that no one had a word to say about this. It's very interesting how Jesus talks about this and this particular setting because this setting is a feast. And heaven is a feast. They talk about it in the scriptures. In fact, in Isaiah 25, 6, uh, God talks about the feast that is to come. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, to, for rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the vein that is spread, the veil that is spread over all nations. He shall swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all the faces, and the shame of his people he will take away from all the earth. Notice here this picture that God gives through the prophet Isaiah that there will be a feast, and all peoples will be invited. Meaning all peoples, everyone from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Not just Israel. And in this feast, what will be taken away is the reproach and shame of the nations. He will wipe away tears. This was the understanding of Israel when Isaiah gave the scripture. But something happened throughout the centuries leading up to Jesus' life. In the second century, there was a book that was created, the book of Enoch, which isn't part of the Hebrew scriptures, but is considered uh, an important book. And this passage was translated that no longer was this feast for all peoples. In fact, it said that to get to this feast, the Israelites would have to go through the blood of the Gentiles to get to the banquet. That somehow a group of people was being separated out, that it was only Israel that had the right to have shame taken away. By the time it got to Jesus' place, Jesus' time, there was a group called the Qumran community. You've probably heard of the Qumran scrolls. They discovered that. A group of people called the Essenes, who were sort of the ultra, ultra Pharisee. And they had a document called the Messianic Rule that talked about the famous banquet, the banquet from Isaiah. And again, in this messianic rule, they were certain that no Gentiles would be present. In fact, only pious Jews who observed the law would be able to attend. And each one would sit in the order of their dignity. And no one who had uh, mutilated or uh, 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 injured hands or lame or the blind, or the deaf, or the dumb, or was smitten in his flesh with a visible blemish would be able to attend. See, these are the kind of things going on in the minds of the Pharisees that invited Jesus. And it's a wonder that when he comes to this banquet table, they have nothing to say. Because in their mind, they're possibly thinking, this is not a person who is allowed to the banquet table of God. Surely he can't be allowed to our banquet table. They're isolating out people. There's discrimination that's going on. And so Jesus is revealing to them their hearts. He says, which of you having uh, an ox that has fallen into the well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? Will not immediately help him? 
And that's just your animal. Surely not this person be healed as well? See, what Jesus did there in that particular passage was reveal their hearts that they're playing in favorites. They're playing favorites. They're standing in judgment of him so they could look better. Now that you have a little background, the dinner party is served. In verse 7. And when it's time to sit, Jesus is watching as the people are jockeying for position. In fact, I think I have a seating chart up here. If uh, uh, We'll bring it up on how people would be seated. Uh, Michelangelo, by the way, you know the Last Supper? Was it Michelangelo? Da Vinci. Michelangelo, right? Totally wrong. Okay? They, they didn't sit that way with Jesus in the center. Rather, they sat on what was called a triclinium. It was like a, a C, if you will. Okay? And so here would be the entrance right here, and this is the way they would seat. This was probably the way the Last Supper, in terms of how people were seating. I think it's over there as well. Jesus Christ is sitting right here. This is the seat of influence. This is the head seat. It's not over here. And in fact, John, if you remember, you would actually lean on your left arm, and it was a couch, and you would lean back, so to speak. And John, the one who reclines at Jesus' bo bosom, is there, and Judas who is supposed to have Jesus back. Literally, he's called his back man. To protect him is sitting right here. Peter is over here. He's the one who came in, and the result of that is this is the person who's actually supposed to wash everybody's feet. Peter pulled the last straw. So what's going on is as all of these people are sitting down for the dinner party, okay, you probably have the host over here and Jesus over here, and you've got all of these things right here. And everybody's kind of jockeying to get in the particular position closest. But Jesus says something very interesting. He turns and it's, you know, you can imagine everybody's taking their position. And Jesus says, I have something to say. When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor. Now, why do we do this? It's easy to sort of make fun of the Pharisees. But if we're honest and look at ourselves... We do this all the time. We want the place of honor. We are, in some cases, obsessed with ourselves. How do I know this? Well, when you get a group of pictures, who's the first person you go looking for? Me, myself, and I. It's a strange culture now with this whole concept of taking selfies, right? I want to take a picture of myself, but... It's not a picture of myself where I'm like hanging out of my jammies, you know, I just woke up. No, I do myself, you know, I've, I've heard, all, there's whole sections on how to do your Facebook picture. How to do your other picture, how to look your best. Photoshop, to make ourselves in the best way possible. Most people, when we look at ourselves in a picture, we don't like the way we look. Or if we hear our voice, we don't like the way we sound. Well, why is that? It's who we are. It's, who, it's how we are. There's a sense that I should be better. That I should deserve more. I've discovered as I look at my heart that I see the world askew. I sort of weight it, if you will, to me. That I am more in the right that I should be that my opinions have higher value. When someone else does something, the motives I attribute to them are this, but to myself. I'm very blind in the way I look at myself. And may I suggest that we're all like that. 
There's something very wrong in our hearts, this desire to be first. And in fact, we can trace it throughout the entire Bible, can't we? Remember Satan in the beginning, Adam and Eve, in the image of God, the glory of God, the ones chosen to manage the earth? And yet Satan comes to them and says, that's not good enough. Eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and you will be like God. You can be first too. And so they did. Cain and Abel, they both bring a sacrifice. Abel's sacrifice is regarded as higher. Why? We're not exactly sure. My gut and guess is because he brought the best of his fruits. Cain is angry. He doesn't like that his sacrifice is not first. And so he kills Cain in the field. Satan, Lucifer, the bright morning star, who is so beautiful, and yet it wasn't enough. This heart of darkness inside of us, it is what chokes us out. It's what causes us to put ourselves above others. James says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something and you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasure. We sit in judgment of others and we sit in judgment of God. Do you ever wonder why the world hates Christianity so much? I mean, I know of no other religion where the founder and leader of that religion is also a curse word. Think about that. You know, nobody swings and strikes out and says, I'm Buddha. Yet they use the name of Jesus Christ. Why is that? The reason that people hate Jesus Christ is because he reveals the truth that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Jesus said, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. In John 3.19, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love the darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. So Jesus came to reveal the truth of the matter that we are not all that. That we are sinners in need of a Savior. That we do not deserve the pinnacle of glory. But the reality is what we deserve is shame. Our world wants to say that there is no sin. There is no need for a Savior. But my friends, our position of honor is perilous if we seek to claim it for ourselves. If we claim this position of greatness for ourselves, we will be brought down. See, the story of this dinner banquet is ultimately the story of heaven. We will all face judgment. And Jesus will stand and we will bring our efforts. If we bring our efforts and rely on our righteousness, I did this and this and this, and Jesus will say, away from me, I never knew you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. I decided to write a, some poetry to mix things up because I knew 
you would want to hear about one of my favorite topics. I titled this, Me, Myself, and I. It's very profound. Me, Myself, and I, a joy to behold. A tribute to the human race, we're worth our weight in gold. Me, Myself, and I, a trio of sheer delight. We share the same brain, no need to explain just why we're all so bright. Me, myself, and I, so humble in every way. Not an easy way to be when you get better looking each day. Me, myself, and I, what more could anyone need? We have it all and we have a ball, just the greatest, yes, indeed. Me, myself, and I will now be on our way. We're tired of bragging, our energy's lagging. It's time to call it a day. This passage is a mirror. So what do you see? Am I living my life like the Pharisee? Seeking by my actions to ascend to the place of honor. It's really easy to do that in the church, you know. We get a gold star for coming. I have my act together. Maybe you have a good name in the community, a clean record, a good job. It's easy to find the person with edema out there and say, look at me compared to them. And so we stand in judgment of others. But ultimately, we stand in judgment of God. Not one of us deserves the place of honor. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so if you truly want to understand what it means to be seen as glorious in God's eyes, you've got to move down the table. You've got to put down your resume. You've got to stop your jostling and take your eyes off of yourself. Because if you don't, in the end, it might just be your pedigree that's going to kill you. But when you go to the lowest spot, when you abandon hope in your own opinion of yourself, when you have a proper view of who you are, it is at this place that God is ready to do a work in your heart. This leads me to my second point, because now we can have a proper view of God. If the problem with man is that he sits in judgment of God, the reality is that God sits in judgment of man. We see that Jesus warns people not to do this because he says, verse 9, He who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. See, the most important thing we need to understand is that this feast is God's. It belongs to him. He invited to us. And he alone is the one who has the power to determine the spots of honor. Think about this, that God is the one who made us and sustains us, tells, says the scriptures. He's the one in which we live and move and have our being. Did anyone here choose to be born? Did anyone have a say in that? Aside from Eleanor. Listen to this, by the time I finish reading this one sentence, 25 million of your cells will have died. It's okay though, your body made more than 300 billion new ones today. Did you do that? 250, only in one, in one cell alone, there are over 100,000 chemical reactions that take place every second. 
We are not sustaining ourselves or making ourselves. God not only made us, but he made the world. The complexity of the world is staggering. It's very interesting where people say the world sort of is at random. It appeared out of nothing. And yet the very thing they use to understand the world are these constants that have always existed. These constants that show us that with just a small deviation, life wouldn't exist. You ever heard of the gravitational constant? It's what keeps all of the planets from either flying out or from collapsing. The odds of that occurring, the gravitational constant, are 10 to the 50th power. What about the nuclear force of the cells, the, the, uh, you know, the covalent and the ionic bonds, everything keeping together? Just coming off of that by 2%, all of life fails right there. Are you in control of that? It was Fred Hoyle, the astronomer, uh, excuse me, the scientist Fred Hoyle and William Fowler discovered the exceedingly high improbability of oxygen, carbon, helium, and beryllium having the precise values to allow for both carbon abundance and carbon bonding. This anthropic coincidence was so striking that it caused Hoyle to abandon his previous atheism and declare a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology and there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. Any physicist right now will tell you, a very, very small percentage will say that there is a randomness, that these things could have just happened. There's really only two choices, even Stephen Hawking. Either there's a creator or there's an infinite number of universes, multiverses, which is really just passing the buck, isn't it? Who created all of those? God says, to whom will you compare me? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and strength, not one of them is missing. Fear not, nor be afraid, God says. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not one. And so God, the God of the universe and flesh, speaks to us and says, when you are invited, go and sit at the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. And then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. It is fear of God that is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One that is understanding. And only when we recognize ourselves as sinners, rebels against God's law, that we recognize God is holy and just and the one who has every right to annihilate us is then when we cry out to God for mercy. I love this picture, if you can go back to the triclinium. Because we see something amazing in it. I don't know if you're able to go back, Ron. Because what we see in this, what God is saying is, instead of trying to take the place of honor, go ahead and take the lowest place on the other side. The place of the servant. But don't you remember what Jesus did? During the meal, after the meal, he took off his garments and put on a serving towel. And he got up from his position. 
And he walked all the way around to here. And he began to serve them one by one by one. This was Peter's shame, wasn't it? Oh, you can't wash my feet. It's Jesus that moves us up the table of glory. It's he who stoops down to make me great. It's he who dies on a cross, naked and scorned, that I might be clothed with heavenly garments and receive the glory of God. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus, this high priest, meets our need. The one who is holy and blameless and pure. And yet came not to serve. Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Is there not any more beautiful picture of the graciousness of God, of his promise to us, that when we bow our head in his presence, when we declare our shame, when we acknowledge our brokenness, who would come and lift us up onto his shoulders and stoop down to make us great. And so, my friends, we must abandon our hope in ourselves. But we must also fix our eyes on him. We must see his holiness, his purity, and we must trust in his grace. We must trust in the promises of Christ. He says, I will raise you up we must choose either the world or God because we can't have both the opinion of man or the opinion of God which would you want the fickleness of the crowd whose glory of you is based on what you did only today or the one who loves you in spite of what you have done and stoops down to make you great. This is the beauty and the glory of the gospel. That God is the one who has the power to turn your shame into glory. And when you humble yourself under his hand, he will lift you up. This brings me to my final point. That when we see God in all of his fullness and glory, after we've seen ourselves, that ultimately we can see others. Jesus finishes with this admonition. When you invite someone to your banquet, don't just invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors so they can invite you in return and you can be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. See, the gospel fundamentally transforms the way we see people. Not like the person with dropsy in front of us, but as vessels in the image of Christ. And our hearts can go out to them. That we, like Christ, can walk around the table and bend the knee below them and wash their feet and stoop down to make them great the beauty of the church my hope for each one of us is, would be that we would treat each other this way that we would carry our serving towel on our arm that our desire would be to make the other person glorious 
to listen to them, to put them above ourselves because Christ has been so good to us. And as we go out into the world, think of that person who cannot repay you. Think of that person you despise, the one who sits across you in the cubicle in your office, the one everyone hates, the one no one will touch, the person everyone's overlooked. Jesus says, go to them. Love them and lift them up. And in demonstrating that, in living that way, God's glory is manifest to the entire world. It's how we live ultimately that will show who we are. The choices that we make. And so I close with the question again. What will you choose? The glory of the world? The glory of Christ? Let's have a proper view of ourselves so we can have a proper view of God and what He's done. So we can see the world with eyes of love and grace. It is God who has the power to turn your shame into glory. So humble yourself under His hand and He is the one who will lift you up. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this beautiful picture Lord, we don't deserve the place of glory. We don't even deserve a place at the table. But you invite us and you lift us up and you wash our feet and you clean us by your grace and you give us the family robe and ring and you celebrate over us with your love. How will we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? Lord, let it permeate into each one of those cells. Let them be renewed by your grace and let it touch each and every one that we come into contact with as we go out into this world, vessels of God's grace and glory. Pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.